This world is plagued by chaos, harshness, and difficulty. Its unforgiving landscape hardened by sin like a barren rock lacks sympathy and love, leaving us feeling isolated, defeated, hopeless, and alone. Yet Christ has not called us out of the world, but sent us into it. Why is this? When we look closely, we can see his divine fingerprints, the very marks which allow us to look beyond the fleeting moments before us and through them to the vast expanse of eternity. It is here that we can joyfully acknowledge that every moment of our lives is significant and holds great purpose. A purpose to embody the life of Christ in every circumstance that a watching world may know Him. This is the life that shines like a light in the darkness. This is the book of Philippians. Good evening, everyone. My name is Danny, if we haven't had the chance to meet before. Um, now, before we get into the book of Philippians, into the message for tonight, uh, I want to acknowledge just something that most of you guys are already aware of. But guys, Disney World is 50 years old. Isn't that awesome? Guys, it is so cool. And, and I mention that in this room because I'm imagining that most of our lives have been impacted in one way or another by the Walt Disney Company. By the virtue of the reality that you live here in Orlando means that you are in some way impacted by the Walt Disney Company. Now, I mention that not because everything and anything the Walt Disney Company does is, uh, is in line with the scriptures, that the Walt Disney Company is infallible or perfect in any way, shape, or form, but because as it, it talks about in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 27, um, the prophet Jeremiah finds himself in exile under the Babylonian empire. And he is talking to the rest of the nation of Israel um, who is with him in exile. And what he encourages them to do is to pray for and seek prosperity for the nation of Babylon. Even though these are the people who have conquered them. These are the people who took them over. These are people that are very much ungodly. But he says, seek prosperity in this land because if they are blessed, then you will be blessed as well. So in, that, in light of that, it's not because Disney's perfect, but it's because for so many of us, our stories are very much, God has weaved Disney into our story. And with that, over the last 50 years, disciples have been being made right behind us at Walt Disney World. For 50 years, there have been local churches who have sought to minister to cast members. Right now, there are a multitude of different ministries, parachurch ministries and local churches who desire to make disciples at Walt Disney World so that we would see every aspect of our lives, including for those of us who are cast members, what we do when we are on stage and off stage at Walt Disney World be done for the glory of Jesus alone. And that is praiseworthy. That is good. And for that, we can celebrate the last 50 years and all the memories we have made when we were at the parks, when we were working there. And we can look forward to the years ahead of what God can and will do at Walt Disney World. So with that, before we get into the message tonight, would you guys just pray with me and seek the prosperity of Walt Disney World with me? So Father, I thank you for the Walt Disney Company because in that 
space in this company over the last hundred years, you have continued to bring about this corporation filled with people, filled with people, image bearers of you who desperately need to know your love. You have used storytellers who know and follow after Jesus to make beautiful art through the Walt Disney Company. You have used creative imagineers who know you to create things that are just spectacular in the parks. You have used cast members, frontline employees to make magic and more importantly, to spread your uncommon love. So we, Lord, we we give you all the praise and honor and the glory for what your people have done for the Walt Disney Company and right here at Walt Disney World over the last 50 years. And we look forward to our little piece in that story to make disciples right here in our day, in our age, in our location. And we pray for all the other ministries as well, all the other churches that seek to reach out uniquely to customers at Walt Disney World, that they would be a blessing, that your church would be a blessing to Walt Disney World, that your church would be a blessing to to cast members and to guests. And that through that, Jesus would be made known. He would be magnified. So it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Awesome. Well, speaking of Disney, um, I was thinking about this question this week. What is essential in your life? What is essential in your life? I was thinking about growing up. Uh, Disney very much felt very essential to my childhood. It was, uh, my family wasn't perfect. And, but my parents growing up in California would take us to Disneyland at least once a year. And it was in that space that we had our like one big family moment of the year. So there was a lot of memories in that space. I loved Disneyland. It was awesome. Um, the stories of Disney, the movies, um, the DCOMs, all the stuff on Disney Channel was like very instrumental in my upbringing Disney helped shape me, encouraged me. It was a place of escape from the difficulties that I experienced as a kid. It's always kind of been a significant part of my life. And it became even more so when I moved all the way over here to be a part of the Disney College program, eventually a professional internship, all the time here at Mosaic at Walt Disney World. It's like the, the story of Disney was very much weaved with mine. So it was, felt pretty essential to me. Now, at different points in time, there was points where the company and my position within it kind of felt like an idol in that. It felt like it was the thing that gave me value, worth, position, identity. Now, maybe for you growing up, it wasn't Disney. Maybe it was a sport you played. Maybe it was a friend group you were a part of, a clique. Maybe it was um, theater and dance. For all of us, it's probably a little bit different, but where, what did growing up did you find to be essential to your identity? See, something that you literally couldn't imagine your life without. Let me phrase the question just a little bit differently. Where in your life do you find your well-being presently? Do you find your well-being in your social group? Is it in pleasures and dreams fulfilled? Maybe it's just in survival. Is it in caring for your family or for your home life? Is it in career goals being fulfilled? Is it in health and safety being intact? Is it in money in the bank? None of those things are bad, right? But those can so easily be the things that define our well-being. How I am doing is attached to those realities. I can tell you for me so easily, my well-being in my current stage of life is attached to how my wife, Allie, and our kids, Asher and Abby, are doing. 
on the one hand. Like how they are doing will directly impact how I am doing today. And then on the other hand, I, my reality is very much impacted by the well-being of this community. If you guys aren't doing well, I am not doing well. And with these two things, when there is struggle, I struggle. See, it's so easy for any of these things to become defining factors of life where you find your identity, your, your purpose, your value, your values. Now, from a cultural standpoint, now like, like let's zoom out a little bit to the world we live in. That's not exactly a space that would be said from a cultural standpoint is reserved for the gospel. Now, here's what I mean by that. In our world and in our culture, it can be difficult to see the gospel as an essential reality in life. I mean, it can seem like religious beliefs and spirituality um, should be something that each of us kind of have our own little flavor in in our world to make us a better, quote, unquote, holistic person. But don't overdo it with the Jesus stuff. See, the gospel ends up being relegated to just one of the plethora of systems of beliefs. Jesus is turned into one teacher in a pantheon of religious figureheads. Heaven is turned into an alternative that's much better than the other place. No wonder for many of us, our passion and our joy, even for those of us who identify with Jesus, is more found by our circumstances than anything to do with Jesus himself. We find our hope in relationships and stuff and careers and desires that are all temporary. They're fleeting. We grow disillusioned when those things end up being, that we put all of our stock in, end up slip away from us. I'd imagine almost all of us felt this in the initial quarantine phase of the pandemic. When everything was closed, whatever you thought you found your identity in, your jobs, your places of um, recreation and entertainment were all shelved. Did anybody else struggle with the question like I did, who am I in this? Like what's left of me? And see, that goes to the thing where Jesus is non-essential. He's a checkbox. So when it comes to the everyday realities of life, is Jesus essential? Is Jesus more, to put an analogy that I thought of um, yesterday morning over breakfast, is Jesus more like the toppings that you throw into pancakes or is he the batter himself? Is he like something that's like, oh, that was an, an interesting flavor texture or is he what makes everything function? So this is a central question, not the pancake question, but the is Jesus essential question is a central question that is being explored in this letter, the book of Philippians that we're gonna be going into tonight. This is a letter that was written to a church in a place called Philippi. So over the coming months, we're gonna be digging in and discovering much of the implications of the gospel within this letter. Now, many of you probably, um, I didn't bring mine up, but there is uh, the scripture journals. Yep, I really didn't bring it up. Um, the scripture journals, yeah, you guys have those. Um, if you don't have one of the scripture journals, it has the entire book of Philippians in them and they're available for free. Um, I think even Betsy um, has some extras in the back. So if you need one, feel free to raise a hand and she'll get one right to you. Um, we got a couple, we got a couple. There we go, this is cool, I love it. Now that broke the seal, huh? All of a sudden now you're like, yeah, I could use one. All right, all right, Betsy, we got more than a few, all right? So feel free, raise your hand and she's gonna take care of you. Awesome. Love it. Love this. Love it. Can you throw me a bottle of water? Right there. 
on my chair. Sorry. You guys are all distracted right now. Oh, perfect, perfect. That one, that one. Thank you. You guys were all distracted so I could get water. Thank you. You guys didn't even know I got water, did you? Like it's a magic trick. Cool. All right. So I'm gonna invite you to hold on to this scripture journal as we are journeying through the book of Philippians. And you can take notes in it and, um, and really allow the word of God to uh, impact your heart and your life as we go through this over the coming months. Um, as a church, if you are new to Mosaic, this is kind of the general way that we um, preach at Mosaic as we go through, typically through entire books of the Bible. We take our time and we go, we're, we like take as much time as needed to really dig in deep and extract as much goodness as we can. So tonight, as we begin our letter to the book, um, to the church in Philippi, we're gonna be introduced to this letter um, through the lens of three distinct stories. So if you're a note taker, here are the three stories. These are the main points, I guess you could say, to write down. The first is the backstory. The second is the big story. And the third is our story. So backstory, big story, and our story. So with that in mind, we're gonna start Philippians chapter one, verse one and two. And that's all we're up to tonight, folks. So, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So for us to really understand even this introduction, we need to dig in a little bit to the backstory. So we're going to start with the backstory so that we would understand a little bit of what the ancient audience would have understood when receiving this letter and being read to them for the first time. So a little bit of a history lesson, not an extensive history lesson, but just enough to give us some context. In 42 BC, so roughly about 100 years before this letter was written, Philippi, this place is a, um, was a colony of the Roman Empire. It was made a colony of the Roman Empire because of a big battle that happened between Mark Antony and Octavian in defeating the Roman forces of Brutus and Cassius. Those are the guys that um, assassinated Julius Caesar, if you know your Shakespeare very well. Um, so these two forces met up in Philippi, and they had a big brouhaha, and it went crazy. It was a big, big battle. Now in that, the battle was so significant that the victors ended up settling a number of their veteran soldiers there as a retirement community. So think ancient version of military villages, right? So like you have all of these military officials all moving there into Philippi. And now, so you'd understand a little bit of the geography, it's pretty far away from Rome. It's also in Europe, but it's in an area called Macedonia at the time. So it's pretty far away from Rome in modern day Italy. So as they are setting up this ancient colony, it quickly gains an identity as what we would, we'll probably refer to through the series as baby Rome. It was baby Rome. Everything about it was meant to teleport your imagination back to Rome. It was given the highest possible privilege as a colony of Roman um, provincial municipality. It was called the Ius Italicum. And what that meant is that it was governed by Roman law and exempted from, from certain taxes that were usually given to Roman colonies. Now, here's why that's a big deal. So you have Judea, where Jerusalem is. Um, that is 
at this point, conquered by the Roman Empire. They have taxes levied against them, and they are also subject to Roman law, but at the same time, they are allowed to still have Jewish law still in effect. Well, in Philippi, they were so Roman that they didn't even want their own law. They wanted Roman law. They wanted to be just like Rome in every conceivable way. So these settlers, these military veterans, along with the ancient and the previous inhabitants, became all a legal citizen body, but not just of Philippi, but of the Roman Empire as well. Now, Roman citizenship wasn't just given out to everybody. So the fact that everyone in this entire colony was given it, that was a really big deal. Now, Philippi itself was even modeled after their mother city, Rome. It was laid out from a urban planning perspective in similar patterns. The style and the architecture was copied extensively. The coins that were used in the city had Roman inscriptions on them. The, The language that was used was the Latin language. Even their dress, their garb was all Roman. They really, really, really liked Rome. And they were, a major, they were a major player on the commerce trail that connected ancient Asia with Rome. There was a major road there, and Philippi sat as, at a strategic point along this roadway. Now, to give us a, just a little bit of context, um, in America, we are a nation that is made of so many different immigrant communities and is com- and largely comprised of different um, European empire colonies, right? So like here in Florida was a Spanish colony, which is why if you go to St. Augustine, you'll see a lot of Spanish-influenced architecture, right? And um, if you've been to like Chinatown, whether it's in San Francisco or in New York City, Koreatown, Little Italy, any of those kind of places, you, there's different geographic locations all around this country that have a certain flavor, a certain um, existence that represents a culture that is of another country. So think of like Philippi is like the ultimate version of that, where it's not that the buildings just look Roman, it's that Everybody there believes at their truest identity that they are completely and wholeheartedly Roman. No one is, this isn't a place where everyone is feeling the pinch of being a colony. They are all prideful for being a colony. So in other words, to the Philippians, Rome was essential. They lived Roman lives. They thought Roman thoughts. They took on Roman identities. It was a place where the feelings about their nation went beyond patriotism, which is my country is important to me and went to the place of nationalism that my nation is uniquely important to the gods, the pantheon they worship, and therefore should be important to you. And if it's not, we're gonna conquer you about it. So they were hostile to new ideas and any new concepts that would potentially upend this tradition. So then you have this fledgling new religious movement of the way of Jesus. This isn't exactly the place where you're like, oh, this makes so much sense that this is gonna be like so easy for them to come in and bring the gospel. Like everyone there, they were, it's not like a place of struggle where everyone was super concerned about their lives. Like this is a place where everyone's like, I'm pretty good, which is kind of like the world we live in here in America, right? Where oftentimes most of us feel like pretty good. So like, what could Jesus offer me that I couldn't get for myself? And this was, so if this isn't a place that feels like fertile land for the gospel, you'd be right. Yet this is where this letter is being written to. It's a place where the gospel was not seen as essential. Yet this is exactly the location where Paul is going to go 10 years earlier before this letter 
to plant the very first church on the continent of Asia, or the continent of Europe. Now, that wasn't Paul's idea. In fact, in, all the way back in Acts 16, we get the full scoop of that story. And I'll just sum it up pretty quickly as we read through it. But Acts 16, verse six, here's what's just happened. Paul and his buddy named Silas are joined up by Timothy and they move, made, they're making their way towards Europe. Now they wanna go to Asia, but listen to what happens. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. All these places, I realize, are not names you know. It's okay. You don't need to know any of those ones so far, but the, except that the Spirit of God did not allow them to go to any of those ones. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So this wasn't Paul's idea. He had no desire to go into this area, but he received a vision by the Holy Spirit through a dream. And it was a Macedonian man calling him there. Now, here's why this matters. Because Paul was being sensitive and obedient to the work of the Spirit of God. How often do you get good and wise ideas in your life? I mean, I don't know all of you, but every one of you that I know in this room has some pretty good and wise ideas in your life. But how often do we have submit those good ideas to the Spirit of God for guidance and wisdom and discernment? If you're anything like me, not often enough. But Paul wants to be obedient to the call of the Spirit of God. And look at the craziness that ensues. Verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to um, Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, more cities that you don't need to know about. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. See, I didn't make all that stuff up, right? Okay. We remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now we'll continue in just a second, but one thing I wanted to mention just so we'd get a little bit more context of just how Roman it is. Typically up to this point in Paul's story, whenever he goes into a brand new city, the first thing he always does is he goes to the synagogue. Now the reason he goes to the synagogue is he always presents the gospel of Jesus to the Jewish people first. And he brings it to them Typically, they kick him out. He goes away and he goes and starts something brand new. But he always does the same thing over and over again. But now for this one, after they had been there for some days on a Sabbath day, they went out, but they didn't go to the synagogue. They went outside the gate to the riverside because they were supposing that there was a place of prayer out there. Now, what this means is it is very likely that there was not a huge contention of Jewish individuals settling in Philippi. So there was no synagogue present, hence why they went out to the riverside to see if anyone happened to be praying. And they were. 
And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods. Thyatira, by the way, is in Asia. So she is not a Philippian herself. She is from somewhere else who was a worshiper of God, but she was a worshiper of God. So she's not a Jew. She's Thyatiran, but yet she is a worshiper of God. But the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So this is the first convert in Europe. Isn't that crazy? Like this is that story. Like this is like when we think of Christianity, like we think of its origins being somewhere in Europe or something. No, it came from the Middle East into Europe at this moment. The first convert, the first person to come to know Jesus was Lydia. She was a seller of purple goods, meaning that she was very wealthy. She, was, um, she, had, she even would continue to have a prominent role in the church of Philippi. She was already aware of the God of Israel, meaning um, the phrase that would have been used back then was she was a God-fearer. And she invites them in on her story. And what, lead, what leads her to the point of following Jesus is Paul's words. Paul's words end up convincing her of the beauty and the truth of the gospel. So she's the first one. Now, continuing on verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaimed you the way of salvation. Now that might sound like this is somebody who's awesome. Like this slave girl is apparently saying some really true facts. But apparently that's not the tone she was using because Paul, it says, and this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned around and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. The spirit that was in her was a demonic spirit. And the demonic spirit was being manipulated by her owners to use her for fortune telling essentially essentially. And in that fortune telling, they were making money off of her. Now, Paul, after being harassed by her with truth, but apparently in a bad tone of voice and just the continual annoyance of it all, ends up looking back at her and rebuking the spirit and casting it out of her. And she comes to faith that day. So we have Lydia, and now we have this slave girl. What ends up happening next is her owners are not pleased at their new loss of income. So they end up bringing up the, um, both Paul and Silas up on charges that are all falsely trumped up against them so that they can basically get back for losing their source of income through this slave girl. Now, they end up in prison. And while they're in prison, we receive the next conversion. Verse, let's see, 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison was shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, shouldn't have been sleeping, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped because obviously that would be very beyond dishonoring. This is a punishable offense. So he is ready to take his own life over this. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we're all here. 
And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That was quick. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all that were in his household. Isn't this insane? So we have Lydia, we have a slave girl, and now we have this Philippian jailer, this guy who is a blue collar government worker, probably spiritually indifferent, is now led to Jesus because of Paul's example, because he was a gospel presence in that moment, that he could have easily walked out the door, but instead, for whatever reason, he stayed. And in that, it was peculiar to this Roman jailer. And in that, he comes to faith. Now, what ends up happening next is Paul talks to the, um, the individuals who oversee um, the prison and lets them know that he's actually himself a Roman citizen. Now, remember, this is an entire province that is ruled by Roman law, and they're all Roman citizens. To be a Roman citizen meant you can't press false charges against you. Like, this is a big deal. If you're pressing charges against a Roman citizen, and Paul's like, I'm one of you. And they're like, oh no. So they tried to kick him out in the middle of the night and he's like, I'm not leaving until the morning. So then in verse 40, he finally relents and agrees to leave the city of Philippi. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So Paul is kicked out of Philippi and leaves behind a handful of new disciples of Jesus, including this rich businesswoman, um, Lydia, a former slave girl, a blue collar Roman jailer, each of them discovering how desperately they needed the gospel, how essential it is, despite how unlikely each of them in each of their stories would have seemed to believe it. And this just brings me to the point, is there anyone that you believe that, could, that God could never use for his glory? Do you believe that God couldn't use you or your life because of your past or your present? See, when we do that, we underestimate the power of the God of the universe. And I would say that's foolish. And I do it all the time. But we see in the stories of scripture, story after story of God using those who would have been thought to be unusable. And it's in this, that this is the beginnings of the very first church in Europe, the church in Philippi, the church that now we're gonna be getting into its letter 10 years later. See, in them, in these individuals, in the people around them, this ragtag group of brand new followers of Jesus, it lights a match that becomes a beautiful flame, this new church to thrive. But think about it. They didn't, like Paul didn't have time to disciple them super well. It's been like five minutes since he arrived. And now he's gone. Now he is going to visit them a few times after his departure. And they continue to remain a good relationship and active support, which ends up leading to the letter. So, backstory. This is an unlikely church and an unlikely place. But now let's go to the big story. Why does the church in Philippi need this letter? Well, it's important that we'd rightly understand the contents of the letter to our story. So 10 years have gone by since those events. And, we've, and all of a sudden this church receives back this letter. 
Now, the first layer of this letter, as we get into it, you're gonna notice that it is first and foremost a thank you letter. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, Philippi for their gospel partnership with him because they have been financially supporting him in his ministry. They even sent one of their brothers, a guy named Epaphroditus, to Paul to bring the gift to them. So he's so grateful for the companionship and the partnership and their um, financial care. It was awesome. So he sends them a thank you note. But if that's all we saw this letter as, we'd miss so much of the beauty. Because the second layer is that it is a sending letter. Because Paul, in this, is going to talk about how he's going to be sending back Epaphroditus since he is recovering from a really severe illness. He's also going to be sending Timothy. And both of these men are to be gospel examples to them. The, the story of both of these men are meant to be a demonstration of God's faithfulness in life and what a life sold out to the beauty of the gospel looks like. So it's a sending letter. The third letter is it's a letter of encouragement to this church for what the last 10 years of faithful ministry has looked like. Paul himself also wanted to encourage them in their faith that in the middle of his imprisonment, he wanted to send them this letter. That in the middle of his imprisonment, it would have been socially normal for them to cut off ties with him because Paul was... Paul was in prison way back in the day. And where is he now? Again, he's in prison. And like, there's a social stigma there. So it would have been easy for them to cut off ties with Paul, but instead they bear with him. So he was so eager to thank them, to encourage them, to encourage the faithfulness that they've been demonstrating. They had remained faithful to him and to Jesus. And he wanted to call that out in them. But the core of this letter, and this is what I don't want us to miss is we read it every single week. It is a gospel challenge for all of life to see all of life as an act of grace. See, he's above all concerned that the Philippians continue to make progress in their lives, that he wants to see how all of their lives are continually challenged, changed and transformed by the power of Jesus Christ, that they would see how the gospel is essential for every breath, that every day is a gift from the Father that every moment is an opportunity to demonstrate love for God and love for people, that every interaction is a moment for gospel transformation. And this is the heart of this letter, that they would see that when they are having disagreements with one another, the solution towards unity is the gospel, that when they are feeling like they're doing pretty well as a church, that any version of health emanates from the gospel that where their culture is hostile to the gospel, what they need is not to pick up a sword, but what they need is the gospel. See, the world is too perilous and the gospel is too glorious for them to be content with past achievements or present realities. They must follow Paul's example like he's gonna get it to in chapter three, press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Don't give up, keep persevering, keep pushing through. I know it's hard. I know life is rough. I know sometimes it's feeling great. Sometimes it's all of a sudden, it's like a head change, but all the while, Jesus is consistent in the middle of an inconsistent world. See, this letter might start as a thank you letter, but he doesn't keep it there. The depths and extraordinary beauty of the gospel is needed for this church in their day and in this church in our day. So now, with all that in mind, let's reread our greeting one more time. Paul and Timothy 
servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All of life, every moment of life is an act of grace and peace because of the gospel. And this letter is going to leak that message everywhere, including in this greeting. So it starts with the writer, Paul, and his disciple, Timothy. See, grace has been displayed in the life of the sender of this letter. Paul has seen God's grace over and over countless times in the brokenness of his life. In his story, it just proves that you can't earn grace. Paul's story shows somebody who is so wicked that he wanted to kill those who followed after Jesus, all of a sudden being radically transformed to want to follow after him and make him known. Paul didn't earn God's grace, but yet here he is, not only a recipient of God's grace, he's a carrier of God's grace. He is a giver of God's grace. Is he writing this letter? He is writing it to a group of individuals who are all recipients of God's grace. Remember how this church was started. Lydia, slave girl, Roman jailer, and a few other ragtag converts. This was not the expected worthy crowd, but the growth of this church is an act of grace. This this unexpected church in an unexpected location has grown from a ragamuffin crew to a church filled with overseers, elders, deacons who are the servant leaders, And all were known as saints. Saints is a title that is not given based on our worthiness, but on the worthiness of Christ attributed to us. All of us who are members of the family of God, we are called saints. We are part of the sainthood of all believers. And this church in Philippi is filled with them. See, this is the grace of God for all of life. This is the essential gospel on display. And then in verse two, Paul gets into a standard greeting that he often uses, but I don't want us to miss how beautiful its implications are each time. We just went over it in the book of Philemon a couple of weeks ago. Grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, this is Paul's standard greeting that he gives out each time. It's an acknowledgement of the fruit of the gospel in this church's body. that They have become an established church, but to miss out on more than that would be to miss out on really the beauty of the gospel because you see grace and peace are two realities that we do not deserve or earn, but they are given freely in Jesus. That your choices do not define you. That's the grace of Jesus. That your circumstances don't define you when they're good and when they're bad. That is the peace of Jesus. Now in Philippi, their understanding of peace was something called Pax Romana, Pax Romana um, literally translates to Roman peace. A better translation for it would be forced peace. It was the kind of peace that comes when a ruler says, you are all going to get along, otherwise you're gonna get a a big beating. That was their version. Um, The best version I could think of it is it's Ultron, right? In the age of Ultron, like he wants to bring peace, but we don't really want the kind of peace that he's bringing along with him, right? Like that kind of peace That's this, Pax Romana, Roman peace, forced peace. It is peace by military domination. You will be at peace with one another. 
But you see, in Christ, we don't have forced peace. We are instead recipients of costly peace. See, in Christ, we are recipients of peace that comes through the blood of the lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world. We can have peace, but it's not because we earned it. It's because Jesus paid for it. It's not because peace is free. It's because he paid the bill. And we, when we rest in that, when we discover the beauty of that, we can be transformed by it. So in Christ, it's not forced peace, it's costly peace. See, it's not by your efforts or your achievements that you earn either grace or peace. It derives from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not on you, it's not on me. Thank God. This letter is marked by grace because all of life is an act of grace. See, first we received saving grace when we came to follow after Jesus. But then now we live in sustaining grace that keeps us close to him, even when we feel hopeless, even when we are filled with doubt, even when we are broken, even when we are confused, even when we are walking through the shadow of death, we can fear no evil because our shepherd is with us. That is his sustaining grace. We don't earn it, yet it is available through our father and through his son. This is a letter rooted in a core of gospel challenge about drawing us closer by the grace of Jesus. The truth is none of us have ever earned anything. Anything. We don't deserve to hear God's voice in the scriptures. Yet each time we open it up, each time we open up the Bible, this is an act of grace that we can hold the Bible, that we can hear the voice of God is an act of grace. All of life is an act of grace. So backstory, this is an unlikely church in an unlikely place. Big story, the gospel is essential good news for all of life. But now let's get into our story for just a minute. We'll close out here. Why do you and I need to read this letter today? How is it even relevant? I mean, it's a long, a lot of years have passed. Why does it matter to us? Is it easy to be a Christian in today's world? No, never. It's never been. It's never supposed to have been. No, if we follow Christ, we will encounter opposition. Jesus said that. This letter should, though, encourage us to live for Christ courageously and humbly, meekly and wisely. The other reason is because where are you going for true joy? See, in this letter, what you're going to notice is Paul's like hyper-emotional this entire letter through. He is just like oozing joy. He's the happiest man in the Roman Empire, and he is sitting in prison. That's why he can write things like in Ephesians 2, he can say, I rejoice, so you rejoice. Why are you rejoicing, Paul? Because, not because of his circumstances, but because he is living in intimate, vibrant communion with Christ. So he doesn't say, look at my house, now rejoice. He doesn't say, look at my wife, now rejoice. My kids, my promotion, my bank account, now rejoice. No, he says, look at Jesus with me. Look at what he is doing and rejoice because in that is good news. And that is something that cannot be touched by the world. So where will you find meaning and purpose in life? 
We began our message with that video right in the geode right there. So that story of the geode in many ways reflects the story of the book of Philip, uh, Philippians. On the outside of a geode, it can seem brutal and harsh. But then you flip it on the inside of the geode and we discover beauty in the midst of a harsh reality. See, we live in the middle of planet death with the harshness and brutality that comes along with this world that we live in. But in the midst of it, we can discover in the gospel, grace and peace, the beauty and jewels of the gospel that completely contradict whatever our circumstances, good or bad, we are living in today. And for that, we can rejoice. And for that, I'm excited to get into this book. And with that, welcome to the book of Philippians. Now, hopefully, you have hobbies, aspirations, dreams, goals, things you're going for, um, things that you enjoy in life. Like, it's not about that. It's not like, this world's terrible, and therefore, only think of Jesus every minute of every day. But it's realize that all of those other things in life, those things, those things are just acts of grace. At their best, there are ways that we would discover the incredible love of our Heavenly Father every day. And that's why I get excited about books like Philippians, because in it, we can see the heart of God displayed for his kids. And if you are in the family of God, you're one of his kids. And that means even on our worst day, we're doing pretty well. Amen? So I wanna encourage you and just challenge you. This is just a little bit of homework for the next like six months. I would love it on every week you can remember or put a reminder on your iPhone to take, to take like a half an hour once a week to read the entirety of the book of Philippians on your own. Just read over it. You have it in your hands. Just read over it whole time through once a week. And I wanna see not just how God would reveal to you the truth while we're up here, even though this is good, but in, when you are interacting with the spirit of God through the word of God yourself. So I wanna challenge us all to that. I'm gonna put that reminder on my phone tonight. And I would love to see how, what conversations we might have about the book of Philippians and what God is doing in us and through us with it. So let's pray together right now. Father, I thank you for all of your word that within the scriptures, we discover your love and your grace and your kindness God, I thank you that your word does not return void, but it is truly good news that it can breathe life to dry bones. Lord, I, I, I realize that in this room and online right now, listening to a podcast later, there are individuals who are hearing this and they're feeling like dry bones right now. That would sum up their um, experience with you right now. So Lord, I wanna specifically lift up those brothers and sisters right now because they need you. Lord, I, I, I would ask that you would help them to be honest with you about that, where they could wrestle with you and in biblical community about that, where they're at. Lord, your word is too good for us to remain in the pit where it feels more like a chore. 
So Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your word, that there would be no shame or guilt associated, but instead we would see and receive the freedom, the grace, the peace that we have received by you through Jesus. God, we need you more than we know. Thank you for the book of Philippians. Thank you for the grace and peace that it brings to us as we go through it. I pray that our lives would never be the same. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.